Section 52 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Section 52. Two Biographies of Keats. Paul Mall Gazette, September 27, 1887. A poet, said Keats once, is the most unpoetical of all God's creatures. And whether the aphorism be universally true or not, this is certainly the impression produced by the two last biographies that have appeared of Keats himself. It cannot be said that either Mr. Colvin or Mr. Rossetti makes us love Keats more or understand him better. In both these books there is much that is like chafe in the mouth, and in Mr. Rossetti's there is not a little that is like brass on the palate. To a certain degree this is, no doubt, inevitable nowadays. Everybody pays a penalty for peeping through keyholes, and the keyhole and the back stairs are essential parts of the method of the modern biographers. It is only fair, however, to state at the outset that Mr. Colvin has done his work much better than Mr. Rossetti. The account Mr. Colvin gives of Keats's boyhood, for instance, is very pleasing, and so is the sketch of Keats's circle of friends, both Lee Hunt and Hayden being admirably drawn. Here and there, trivial family details are introduced without much regard to proportion, and the posthumous panegyrics of devoted friends are not really of so much value in helping us to form any true estimate of Keats's actual character as Mr. Colvin seems to imagine. We have no doubt that when Bailey wrote to Lord Houghton that common sense and gentleness were Keats's two special characteristics, the worthy archdeacon meant extremely well. But we prefer the real Keats, with his passionate willfulness, his fantastic moods, and his fine inconsistence. Part of Keats's charm as a man is his fascinating incompleteness. We do not want him reduced to a sandpaper smoothness, or made perfect by the addition of popular virtues. Still, if Mr. Colvin has not given us a very true picture of Keats's character, he has certainly told the story of his life in a pleasant and readable manner. He may not write with the ease and grace of a man of letters, but he is never pretentious, and not often pedantic. Mr. Rossetti's book is a great failure. To begin with, Mr. Rossetti commits the great mistake of separating the man from the artist. The facts of Keats's life are interesting only when they are shown in their relation to his creative activity. The moment they are isolated, they are either uninteresting or painful. Mr. Rossetti complains that the early part of Keats's life is uneventful, and the latter part depressing, but the fault lies with the biographer, not with the subject. The book opens with a detailed account of Keats's life, in which he spares us nothing from what he calls the sexual misadventure at Oxford, down to the six weeks' dissipation after the appearance of the Blackwood article, and the hysterical and morbid ravings of the dying man. No doubt, most, if not all of the things Mr. Rossetti tells us, are facts, but there is neither tact shown in the selection that is made of the facts, nor sympathy in the use to which they are put. When Mr. Rossetti writes of the man, he forgets the poet, and when he criticizes the poet, he shows that he does not understand the man. His first error, as we have said, is isolating the life from the work. His second error is his treatment of the work itself. 
Take, for instance, his criticism of that wonderful Ode to a Nightingale, with all its marvelous magic of music, color, and form. He begins by saying that the first point of weakness in the poem is the surfeit of mythological allusions, a statement which is absolutely untrue, as out of the eight stanzas of the poem only three contain any mythological allusions at all, and of these not one is either forced or remote. Then coming to the second verse, Oh, for a draught of vintage, that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora in the country green, dance and Provencal song, and sunburnt mirth. Mr. Rossetti exclaims in a fine fit of blue-ribbon enthusiasm, quote, Surely nobody wants wine as a preparation for enjoying a nightingale's music, whether in a literal or in a fanciful relation. To call wine the true, the blushful hypocrine, seems, to him, both stilted and repulsive. The phrase, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim, is, though picturesque, trivial. The succeeding image, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, is far worse. Unquote. While such an expression as light-winged dryad of the trees is an obvious pleonasm, for dryad really means oak-nymph. As for that superb burst of passion, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Mr. Rossetti tells us that it is a palpable, or rather, quote, palpable, fact, that this address is a logical solecism, unquote, as men live longer than nightingales. As Mr. Colvin makes very much the same criticism, talking of, quote, a breach of logic which is also a flaw in the poetry, unquote, it may be worth while to point out to these last two critics of Keats's work that what Keats meant to convey was the contrast between the permanence of beauty and the change and decay of human life, an idea which receives its fullest expression in the Ode on a Grecian Urn. Nor do the other poems fare much better at Mr. Rossetti's hands. The fine invocation in Isabella, Moan hither, all ye syllables of woe, From the deep throat of sad Milpomene, Through bronzed lyre and tragic order go, and touch the strings into a mystery. Seems to him a fadure. The Indian Bacanti of the fourth book of Endymion he calls a sentimental and beguiling wine-bibber, and as for Endymion himself, he declares that he cannot understand how his human organism with respirative and digestive processes continues to exist, and gives us his own idea of how Keats should have treated the subject. An eminent French critic once exclaimed in despair, Je trouve des physiologies partout. But it has been reserved for Mr. Rossetti to speculate on Endymion's digestion, and we readily accord to him all the distinction of the position. Even where Mr. Rossetti seeks to praise, he spoils what he praises. To speak of Hyperion as a monument of Cyclopean architecture and verse is bad enough, but to call it a stonehenge of reverberance is absolutely detestable, nor do we learn much about the eve of St. Mark by being told that its simplicity is full-blooded as well as quaint. What is the meaning, also, of stating that Keats's notes on Shakespeare are somewhat strained and bloated? 
And is there nothing better to be said of Madeline in the eve of St. Agnes than that, quote, she has made a very charming and lovable figure, although she does nothing very particular except to undress without looking behind her and to elope, unquote. There is no necessity to follow Mr. Rossetti any further as he flounders about through the quagmire that he has made for his own feet. A critic who can say that not many of Keats's poems are highly admirable need not be too seriously treated. Mr. Rossetti is an industrious man, and a painstaking writer, but he entirely lacks the temper necessary for the interpretation of such poetry as was written by John Keats. It is pleasant to turn again to Mr. Colvin, who criticizes always with modesty, and often with acumen. We do not agree with him when he accepts Mr. Owens's theory of a symbolic and allegoric meaning underlying Endymion. His final judgment on Keats as the most Shakespearean spirit that has lived since Shakespeare is not very fortunate, and we are surprised to find him suggesting, on the evidence of a rather silly story of Severn's, that Sir Walter Scott was privy to the Blackwood article. There is nothing, however, about his estimate of the poet's work that is harsh, irritating, or uncouth. The true Marcellus of English song has not yet found his Virgil, but Mr. Colvin makes a tolerable Statius. 1. Keats by Sidney Colvin English Men of Letters Series Macmillan and Company 2. Life of John Keats, by William Michael Rossetti, Great Writer Series, Walter Scott. End of section 52, Two Biographies of Keats, 1870-1900.